0: Good morning, church. I am grateful to be here with you all, and I trust that you are eager to learn from God's Word as we think about Holy Scripture together. Before we we turn to our passage today in Matthew chapter 14, uh, I want to share a story with you that happened to me a few years ago when Emily and I first moved to Louisville, Kentucky to go to seminary. I, I learned some new things about driving that I just wasn't aware of before the time I moved there. I, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, went to college in southern West Virginia, so I didn't have much experience of driving around in cities. So keep that in mind as I tell you this story. But one, one evening, as we were driving home, we, we had some friends who lived downtown, and it wasn't really a great part of downtown. And we were driving home, got in the car, had a good evening, it was starting to get dark. Kind of a sketchy neighborhood though, so I'm already a little bit nervous driving through. And there are, there are things in city driving that are just different, right? Like there's, there's different lights going everywhere, there's this street, there's that street, there's, there's crosswalks like everywhere and you have to yield to the pedestrians. Don't worry, I didn't run anybody over. I, I knew about the crosswalks. But at one point, I was trying to follow my GPS, and I, I made the, the next left turn, just like it told me to do, and I started driving down the road, and Emily was sitting beside me, and we look over, and there's a group of guys, and particularly one guy I have uh, grained in my head. He's going like this, and he's jumping up and down, and he's trying to tell me something, and you know, it's already getting dark, sketchy neighborhood. My instinct at this point is to hit the gas and let's keep going. But I realized there's no imminent danger And then all of a sudden, it dawned on me. There are these things called one-way streets. And I was going down the one-way street. But before I realized that, I was wondering, what on earth is this guy doing? Why is he doing that? You know, it didn't make any sense to me. Why was he doing that? Thankfully, I've learned how to drive better since then and haven't had any incidents since that time. But why was he doing that? I didn't have a clue at that time. And today in our passage in Matthew chapter 14, we really ask the same question to a very familiar story about Jesus. It's the account where Jesus and and Peter actually walk on water. And I think we need to ask, why did Jesus do that? Of all the things that we know Jesus is capable of, why did he decide to walk on the water? It's by far one of the most famous stories about Jesus It's in all the children's books. It's in all of the pictures. But if somebody asked you, why did Jesus walk on the water, what would you say? How does that impact the way you live as a Christian? Or maybe you're not a Christian here today and you have no idea. You just think Jesus was pulling a, a really good trick. Well, I want to think about that today. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, and if you're using one of the black Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 820. Matthew chapter 14, I'm going to read verses 22 through 33. Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be here today. We are thankful for your word We are thankful for this account of your son, Jesus. May it change us. May it help us to understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We ask this in his name. Amen. I believe Matthew gives us this account of Jesus walking on the water and Peter walking on the water for for at least two reasons. First reason is Jesus wants to teach us something about himself. Jesus wants to teach us something about his identity, his person, who is this man. But he also wants to teach us something about our relationship to him. So Jesus gives us this account so that we can learn something about him and also something about our relationship. How do we relate to who Jesus is? What does that mean for our lives? And the end result of all of this, we can go ahead and jump ahead, you see in verse 33, is the proclamation and the worship of Jesus as who he is, the Son of God. And so I pray that this is what happens to us today. What happened 2,000 years ago when these disciples encountered Jesus, would happen to us today? That we would understand who Jesus is and worship him, despite living in a fallen world plagued by chaos and fears And death. If you you look at the context as we get into the story of Matthew chapter 14 and Jesus walking on the water, this chapter is very concerned about who Jesus is. In fact, you could argue that's why all of the gospels were written, was to show us who this man from Nazareth is. But specifically in Matthew's gospel in chapter 14, we see this heating up. And actually at the end of chapter 14, if you look in verse 54, Jesus was, was coming to the synagogues in his hometown. He was doing all of these great things. And then there's this question in verse 54 of chapter 13 that really sets the stage for what we're thinking about today. And it's this, where did this man get his wisdom? And how is he doing these mighty works? That's the question, isn't it? How is Jesus doing this? Who is Jesus? How is he doing these miraculous works? Where did he get this wisdom from? And, and you can start to go down the chapter. The first answer is, isn't this the carpenter's son? We know his parents, we know his brothers and sisters. That's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the carpenter's son. As we jump into chapter 14, you see that, that King Herod thinks that this is John the Baptist back from the dead. Maybe he's another great prophet. But finally, in verse 33, we see, no, this is the Son of God. And again, this is what, why we're reading this story today, why we're thinking through this story today, so that we would once again be reminded that Jesus is the Son of God and is worthy of all of our worship despite living in a fallen world plagued by fears and doubts. So as we think about our story today, let's think about the scene that's, that's setting up, that's taking place in verse 22. Verse 22. So after a long day, we find the disciples at the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus tells his disciples to go ahead of him. It's been a long day of ministry. He just fed 5,000 people, the miraculous miracle that happened there. But why does Jesus tell the disciples to go ahead of him? Why does Jesus urge the disciples to leave him? Well, there's a couple options here as we're thinking about the scene. Option number one is Jesus wanted to prevent the crowds from coming in and making him king, right? This happened in John chapter 6. The crowds see everything that Jesus is doing. They like his teaching. Hey, we want to make you king right now. Or maybe it was Jesus just eager to, to get away for a while, to get into isolation. He wanted to teach this, the disciples this faith lesson. But in all likelihood, it seems like the reason Jesus wanted to to seclude himself was if you look back in verse 13, now when Jesus heard about this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So Jesus already was going to a desolate place. He was already going somewhere to pray. And then the feeding of the 5,000 is actually an interruption of that. But Jesus had compassion on these people and performed this great, this miraculous work. And so we come back to verse 22. and verse 23, we see Jesus is just going back to what he was originally going to do. He was going to be alone with the Father. And while this, this particular passage that we have today isn't a passage on prayer, it does remind us that the pattern of the life of Jesus was a pattern of prayer, was a life of prayer. He was devoted to prayer. So may we be reminded that as followers of Jesus, if, if the Son of God was continually living a life of prayer, how much more ought we to be praying But the scene continues. We find Jesus is alone. He's praying into the night. But the boat that he sent the disciples on is already far away from the land. And Matthew is is, uh, clear and intentional to show us that it was a long way from the land. It wasn't like down the shore where Jesus could just see them and wave to them, talk to them. They were in the middle of the sea. It was dark. It was windy. It was the fourth watch of the night and this is about the time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., so about the darkest part of the night and before sunrise. Combine darkness with water and storms, what do you get? You get absolute terror, don't you? Right? Terror. A few weeks ago, when my family and I were at, were at the beach, I stood on the beach. I wasn't out in the water, but I stood on the beach as a storm was coming in, and it was getting dark, and you just look out into the ocean, or you look out into the sea, and it goes from this image of beautiful sunshine, people on the beach, to, to just terror, it's, it's darkness, the wind is blowing, and this is all happening while I'm still standing on the shore, but the disciples were not standing on the shore, they are directly in the middle of the storm, What do you think is going through their minds at this point in the story, the disciples' minds? What would be going through your mind? You just saw Jesus do a miraculous event. Now he sent you to go ahead of him, and you find yourself in a storm. Maybe you would be thinking, what on earth have I done wrong to get myself into this situation, right? Right? Or maybe you see somebody else in a bad situation or bad circumstances around their life and and you're tempted to say, I wonder what they did wrong to get themselves in that situation. May we be cautious about judging others in their situation because if you look back at verse 22, notice who made the disciples get into the boat. It was Jesus Forceful or not, whether some some commentators argue that he made them, he urged them, he compelled them, or he merely told them to go ahead of them. Either way, Jesus directed them to get into the boat. Jesus took the initiative. Jesus sent them into the storm. And the disciples haven't done anything wrong according to this story. In fact, they are actually in the middle of the storm because they obeyed Jesus. He sent them into the storm. And it's here that we're reminded that Jesus put them, as he often does us, sometimes Jesus will put you or I in a situation that we didn't plan to be in to show us something that we desperately need. Sometimes Jesus will put you in a situation that you didn't plan to be in, that you don't want to be in, that you don't like, but he's showing you something that you desperately need. Jesus was teaching them something about himself, and Jesus was teaching them something about their relationship to him. And as the story goes on, the tension heightens. Things get a bit spooky. Like literally, they get a little spooky. The water's choppy. These guys must be exhausted. They've been trying to row this boat or do whatever they have to do to keep the boat staying above water for hours. And then what could possibly make this situation worse? It's dark. It's windy. There's a storm going on. They're probably hungry, they're probably exhausted, they're tired. What could possibly be worse? How about a ghost, right? Things just get worse when you throw a ghost into the picture, right? But that's exactly what happened. In the midst of this darkness and this chaos, they look out on the water, and to their terror, they see a figure walking toward them. And the only logical conclusion is what? It's a spirit, it's a ghost. And what do they do? Well, they do exactly what you or I would do. They screamed. (laughs) They cried out in fear. They were not expecting it to be Jesus. Right? Sometimes we read this story, as, as I did sometimes, and we look at it and we're like, silly disciples, it was Jesus. Jesus was walking on the water. Everybody knows this. Right? Jesus walks on water. This isn't the case, what was going on here. They, They weren't expecting Jesus to be the one walking on the water. In fact, it made more sense that there was a ghost out there than Jesus out there. At times, God will put you in situations that you didn't plan to be in to teach you something you desperately need. So let's see what the disciples desperately needed. Point number one that I want you to see today is a display of God. A display of God. Remember, this story is for us so that we learn something about God and something about ourselves. A display of God. So, as this scene heightens, as the tension continues, they see this figure coming toward them. Their hearts are pounding. They hear these words Take heart, take comfort. It is I. Don't be afraid. It's Jesus. They recognize the voice. But is Jesus simply saying, hey guys, don't worry, it's just me. I'm not a ghost. Well, on one level, yes, he, he's saying, guys, don't worry, it's just me. It's not a ghost, it's okay. But for the disciples, the situation doesn't really become better, it gets a little more complicated, right? I mean, after all, it's great that the figure coming towards you on the water isn't a ghost, but there's still a person on the water coming towards you, walking on the water, right? So it gets, it gets a little more complicated. It's great that it's not a ghost, but the fact that it's Jesus walking on the water presents a new dilemma. As, as far as we know, the disciples haven't seen this before. Why is he walking on the water? Right? That's the question. Why, why is he doing that? Before we get into answer that question, are, are you amazed at this? Again, sometimes we say, of course he's walking in the water. It's Jesus. But may I remind you that this does not happen. People do not. In fact, people cannot walk on water. So may we be reminded not to read our Bible unimpressed, or be bored you can't feed five thousand people with a few fish and a couple pieces of bread you or i can't make the blind see right you or i can't touch somebody with a disease and heal them you or i can't speak and somebody get up from the dead but jesus can and we have scripture we have the bible to show us This man is not a normal man. This is the king. This is Jesus. So may we be reminded that as we're reading our Bible, especially in very familiar stories, to be amazed, to stand in awe of what Jesus is doing. Don't read your Bible unimpressed. But there's there's something more going on here, isn't there? For the first hearers and readers of this story, There is an unavoidable connection between what Jesus is saying and doing and the God that's presented in the Old Testament. There are two very important things that you need to see today in this this display of God. First it is the words that Jesus is using. Remember he said, it is I. Don't be afraid. It's me, it's Jesus. I'm not a ghost. But another way to translate To to translate these words that we have in our English Bible, you could say, I am. I am. And for those of us familiar with the Old Testament, as the first readers of Matthew would have been, they would have recognized that statement. And this is exactly how God introduces himself to Moses in the Old Testament. Moses was at the burning bush. God told him, go. And Moses says, well, how do I know who who sent me? What am I gonna tell the people? God says, you will tell them, I am has sent you. And this becomes the name of God, even that we read about in Isaiah chapter four to three earlier. I am. And do you remember how Matthew starts out his gospel early on in chapter one? When, When Matthew is describing the genealogy of Jesus and the birth of Jesus, He said this fulfilled a specific prophecy of Emmanuel coming, which means God is with us. So on one level, Jesus is assuring the disciples, it's not a ghost, it's me. But on a much deeper level, Jesus is saying, it's not a ghost, it's I am. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is here So Jesus' words matter as as he's trying to display God to us. But another thing is the action that Jesus is doing, right? We already mentioned people don't walk on water. Who does that? Who walks on water? Job chapter 9 verse 8 says, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. This miraculous act of Jesus is displaying God. He's claiming words of I am are confirmed by his action of walking on the water. But there's more. There's more going on to this story that is actually even more glorious. By walking on the water, what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is demonstrating is that he has dominion over the sea And all that it represents. He is king over the sea and all that it represents. For in the ancient world, you didn't typically go to the beach to have fun. Like maybe you or I would. In Jewish literature or in Jewish writings, the sea was often used to represent something that was threatening. Something that was chaotic. Something that was evil. Something that represented death. I mean, you can even think about all of the stories of the sea monsters that, that have happened over the years, right? The sea, historically, has not been pictured as a pleasant place, especially when it's dark. Even, even later on in the book of Revelation, we would, we would read about the beast that is coming, and he, what is he doing? He's emerging from what? The sea. It, it's representative of, of chaos, of, of calamity, of, of disunity, of death, Jesus is trampling over top of that. I remember one time as a kid, it was about fifth grade, I believe, my my family and I started attending a a new church in town. And of course, a lot of people knew my parents, I didn't know who these people were. But as I was walking into church with some of my friends, um, the greeter at the door who whom I didn't know at the time, looked at me, and he stopped me, didn't even introduce himself. He just said, let me guess. You must be a Snyder. In fact, you must be be Dan's boy. And, you know, a little fifth grader who loves her dad said proudly, yes, I am, right? But how how did you know that? Well, he replied, you look just like him. That's exactly what's going on in Matthew's account. Has anyone ever asked you, do you look like, or told you that you look like your father? You act like your mother. Certain characteristics that you do, whether good or bad, right? Remind and, and tell someone to say, you're acting just like your father, or that is totally something your mother would do. This is what Matthew wants us to see. Jesus is using words that God uses for himself. Jesus is doing things that only God could do. He is the I am. He is the one alone who walks over the waves of the sea, over sin and death. Jesus is, Matthew is leading us to see that Jesus is the son of God. He's acting and doing things just like his father. Do you see the beauty that's being displayed even in the midst of this storm? Remember when this scene began, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. And what was he doing? He was speaking with with God, his Father. But Jesus didn't stay on the mountain, did he? He didn't stay away from the chaos, the calamity, the, the danger of the storm. He entered the storm on a rescue mission. And if you're looking back at Matthew again, back in chapter one, Matthew informs us that Jesus came. The reason why Jesus came was to save his people from their sins. And if you're looking ahead in Matthew, he shows us exactly how this was accomplished. It was accomplished by Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of his people and rising again. Jesus left perfection for a fallen world. Jesus took the death that we deserve, he took that on himself. Jesus conquered the power of death for all who will repent and trust in him. Jesus didn't stay on the mountain. He didn't just stay in the presence with his father. He didn't look down and see us suffering and leave us go. But he loved us. He came down on a rescue mission. The great I am has intervened in the person and work of Jesus. And he has promised to always be with his people, right? Again, this is how Matthew ends. You are to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Teach them all that I've taught you. And by the way, I'm always with you, even till the end of the age. The great I am is present with us. This, th- just knowing this should, should be enough to calm our fears, to calm our anxieties, to give us great comfort in the midst of uncertainty. This is good news, right? This is gospel. Moms, when, when it's been one of those parenting days and the child's been especially hard to deal with or one of those weeks you feel like you're about to break, Know that the great I am is with you. You're not alone. When your marriage has hit, hit a roadblock, it's stumbling, you feel like it's, it's about to fall, you feel like about to give up, know that you are not alone. The great I am is with you. If you're fighting an illness or a disease, we don't have all the answers, know that the great I am is with you you are not alone. And you're not in this storm because God doesn't love you. In fact, you may be in this storm because God does love you and is showing you something about himself. So knowing that Jesus is the great I am, is Lord over this fallen world, and all that it represents should give us great comfort. But we still fear, don't we? Despite knowing what Jesus has done for us, despite the gospel, despite knowing that Jesus is with us, we still fear. And notice that our story isn't over today. Simply because Jesus showed up, all is not necessarily well with the disciples. The, the, the resolution hasn't been met. The storm is still going on. And at this point in the story, it's, it's kind of like, you know, in a superhero movie, when the tension is high when all doesn't look well, things are getting scary, but then all of the sudden, whether it's Batman or Superman or Spider-Man, name your favorite guy or lady, jumps into the picture and lands, what happens? There's like a sense of, yes, we've got this. There's a sense of comfort. There's a sense of security that's happened. The superhero is here. The hero is here. But the movie isn't over yet. Even the, the resolution hasn't happened yet. There's still fights to be had, there's still things to happen, there's still wars to be won, but just knowing that person is there gives you a sense of confidence, gives you a sense of security. You know how the story is going to end. This is exactly what's going on here with the disciples and what happens to us. We know Jesus has come. We know what he has done. He is here. The hero of the story has showed up, but the story's not over yet, is it? Even times in our our lives, things can look pretty dire. The, The wind is still raging. The waves are still crashing. The hearts of the disciples are still pounding. Chaos and darkness is still surrounding them. And just like the disciples that are in the boat, we live in a world filled with chaos, with darkness. The storm is still raging. Even though Jesus has trampled over the waters, over the calamity, over the chaos, that's going on? The waves and the wind still seem so terrifying, don't they? So what do we do? How do we respond to this? We know King Jesus is here with us, but it's still scary out there. There's still real dangers that affect us. But let's move on in our story as we see that Jesus not only teaches us something about himself, a display of God, he also teaches us something about our relationship to him. And So let's look at a display of faith. Verse 28, we pick up, the tension continues. In the midst of this storm, remember, Jesus just says, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. Continuing on, Peter replies to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. What are we to think about Peter's response here? Should Peter have kept his mouth shut, like sometimes Peter should have? or is this a remarkable display of faith? I'm persuaded that it's the second, that this is a remarkable display of faith. I think the reply of Jesus, which we see, he says, come, indicates that Jesus approves of Peter's request. And notice Peter in this story isn't rebuked for getting out of the boat. He he will be rebuked for his little faith, but not for getting out of the boat. So I think this is an extraordinary display of of faith that is happening here. Remember, the storm hasn't stopped. Jesus tells Peter to come, and Peter obeys. And even more remarkable, as if it's not amazing enough that Jesus is walking on the water, now Peter gets out of the boat, and what happens to him? He begins to walk on the water. Once Jesus has given the command... Walking on the water is simply a matter of trusting and looking to Jesus, isn't it? And this is really a wonderful picture of what it means to be a Christian, right? We don't have to work up the power. We don't have to come up with clever ways to to get to God, to walk with God. It's simply a matter of looking to and trusting Jesus, realizing despite the circumstances that are going on around my life, despite the fear, the calamity, the chaos, I'm looking to Jesus. Jesus. And Peter is walking on the water. But what happens in this story? What happens when our faith seems to fail? What happens when it gives way? Will we sink into the chaos, the calamity that wants to pull us in? Will we perish? As Peter is standing on the water with with Jesus... Peter begins to to feel the wind, right? He's reminded of of the darkness, the chaos, the calamity, the situation that's around him. And this terror overtakes him, and he begins to sink. Literally, he begins to sink into it. He becomes very afraid. He took his eyes off Jesus. Notice what, what the Bible says in verse 30. It says, Peter saw the wind. Now, you can't see wind, of course, right? But you can see the effects of wind. But I think what Matthew is saying by using that language is it's about where, where Peter was focused, where his attention was. And it wasn't on Jesus at this point of the story. Instead of seeing Jesus for who he really was, the all-powerful I am, his circumstances. And, and keep in mind that these, these were real dangers, right? These weren't something Peter was making up. I mean, if he sinks into this, he will die, So there's real, genuine fear going on here. But he let them take control, and doubt took over. He started looking to everything around him, and they became bigger than Jesus. He looked to a situation rather than God's power. Whenever you're facing something in your life that you didn't plan for, that isn't fun, that isn't enjoyable, maybe even difficult, painful... Where, where do you go to find refuge, to find security, to find comfort, to get away from it? When you are fearful or discouraged and upset, where, where are you running to? Do you run to God for comfort and security, for safety? Or do you run to, to something else? There are thousands of things we like to run to whether it's something even like food maybe we run to, to other people which can be good but it can also be a bad thing do we, do we run to work our job we keep ourselves busy if i keep myself busy then i won't have to think about the fears and everything that's going on around me maybe you run to solitude maybe you need a quiet place where do you go the disciples had seen jesus do amazing things right he, he, was, he had casted out demons. He raised a girl from the dead. He, he fed 5,000 people. And they even saw him calm a storm before, back in chapter 8 of Matthew. Jesus was on the boat with them. Remember, Jesus was asleep. They say, Lord, are we going to perish? Jesus stands up, calms the storm. They saw Jesus calm a storm before. So why are they doubting? Why, why the fear? Ask the same for us, couldn't we? What happens when a trial or a circumstance comes our way again? Another storm comes in again. What do you do? What do I do? Do we get discouraged? Do we get depressed? Do we take our eyes off of Jesus? Do we say things like, God must not love me? It's in moments like this that we have a tendency to forget the glory of the gospel, right? We forget that um, Jesus came, died for us, conquered our greatest enemy of sin and death. If he conquered that enemy, he will certainly take care of us through anything else. But it's in these moments when, when we have a tendency to start seeing those ghosts again, right, instead of Jesus. Fear takes over. But brothers and sisters... Here's where the gospel goes even deeper. The good news of Jesus goes even deeper. It's not a one-time event, is it? In the moment of crisis, Peter begins to sink. He knows the only thing he can do is call out to Jesus. And what does he say? Lord, save me. And immediately, instantly, without hesitation, Jesus reaches out his hand and grabs him. Isn't this glorious? Friends, this is Jesus, full of grace, and compassion. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Jesus, the one who was sent to save sinners. Not just one time in your life, not to just get you off the ground and get you going, but he continually is your savior. He is always your savior. Even in the midst of your doubts, of your fears, when you feel like all of these have overtaken you, know who to cry out to. It's Jesus. And he won't hesitate to grab you. He won't think about it. You know, you, you messed up this many times, I think you're done. No, he will not hesitate to save you. We've been singing a song here recently. When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. Jesus will hold you. And what, does, what happens then Jesus grabs Peter. He says, you of little faith, why, why did you doubt? And in a moment, they get into the boat, and the storm is gone. It's gone. And certainly, this, this is a, a rebuke of Peter in a sense, right? Like, you, you should have trusted me, Peter. But, it, but it's also an invitation at the same time. You have little faith. What what is Jesus implying? Have more faith. Trust me. Trust me. But the beauty of this is that Jesus even rescued those with little faith. It's an invitation to trust Jesus more. And one day we're reminded that all of the storms, all of the chaos, all of the calamity, all of the dangers of death will be gone. Gone. One day, Jesus will finally end all the storms. One day, he will speak, and there will be no more evil, no more chaos. Death will be swallowed up forever. One day, it'll all be gone. But until it is, we are called to continually trust the great I am, right? And the beauty of the church is that we can do this together, right? We're not doing this by ourselves. We're doing this together. So where does all of this lead to? The answer to the question, who is this man, is answered, right? Where does he get his power? Why is he doing that? He's the Son of God. The same answer, the same words of truly, truly, You are the Son of God would be used later in Matthew 27. After the final words of Jesus, after Jesus hung on the cross, after the earthquake, a Roman officer and his soldiers would reply, truly, this man is the Son of God. Do you believe this? Do you trust this? Friend, if if you're here today and you, you don't trust this, I just ask, why, why not? Aren't you tired of trying to stay afloat by yourself? And everybody knows you can only tread water for so long before you sink. So don't wait. Look to Jesus. Trust him. And for those of us who are following Jesus, brothers and sisters, continue to trust him. Take comfort in the fact that Jesus saves and rescues those with little faith. But keep in mind, he doesn't want you to stay there. He will often take you places you didn't plan to be, put you in situations you didn't want to be in to teach you something you desperately need. These are trials and things and storms that happen to teach us more about God and more about ourselves. Becoming more like Jesus, our sanctification of becoming more like Jesus, is often more like a child learning to walk rather than flipping on a light switch, isn't it? We're going to fall, we're going to stumble. But trust him during this process, even as the storms rage, even as they come and go. And remember, the storms don't come because God doesn't love you. But in fact, it seems that this storm came because God did love them. And God does love you in Christ. So as as a community of believers, as Hamilton Baptist Church, let's walk together in this fallen world. Let it not just be one of us getting out of the boat to follow Jesus Let's all do it together. Let's walk together and declare who Jesus is. And maybe even today you're facing a storm. You're facing doubts. You're facing fears. Don't, when somebody asks you, how are you doing today? Good. If you're not, tell them. I know there are many people here who want to, to love you and help you. So let's, let's be transparent with each other. Let's share our fears, our doubts, and failures and let's take them to Jesus together. Talk to another brother or sister today if needed. Remember the display of God that is happening here and the display of faith as we trust in the goodness and the character of God even through the uncertainty of this world. This is good news, brothers and sisters. This is gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. For you, we are thankful for your son, Jesus, and we are thankful for your spirit. Thank you that you did not leave us in this world, in the chaos, in the calamity, in the dangers of death, but Father, you sent your son, Jesus, to come and rescue us. If we have not yet trusted him, may we trust him even today, and for those of us who have trusted him, may we continue to do so.